0: Your Bibles, would you go ahead and open them to the book of Ezra? And you can go ahead and open to Ezra chapter 7. Mentioned last week how we were gonna break this up in two parts uh, because of time. And Ezra 7 through 10, that's where we actually get introduced to Ezra, the one the name the book is named after. Uh, So we're gonna be in these last few chapters of Ezra this morning as we're going through the whole Bible, one book at a time to know the greatest story ever told. And before we dive in this morning, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these ancient words, ever true, words though ancient, are no less as relevant for us today. They are living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the very divisions, piercing to the divisions of the heart, of joint and marrow, discerning the intentions of the heart. Lord, this is your word of life. So I pray that as we hear it, as it's taught, as it goes out, that it would go out in power and that it would transform us forever. And pray that we would tremble at your word and also rejoice in the hope that we have in you through your word. Would you open our eyes to behold the wonderful things you have prepared for us through it this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. I had uh, the opportunity, as I sometimes get to do on Saturdays, to watch just a little bit of football. And I uh, was very pleased to see our home team win, right? Oh. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, we are, we are Sooners. And uh, it, was a, it was a good day. I didn't really expect it to go any differently. Um, but one of the things, You'll know this if you've ever watched any football. One of the things that the commentators will often do early in the game is they will put up on the screen a list of keys to success. Now I think yesterday it probably could have said keys to success for Nebraska, it doesn't really matter. But these are the things, right? These are the things that each team is going to have to do if they want to experience victory in the end, right? This is what each team has to do if they want to come out on the other side as victors in the end. And last week, I explained that Ezra is really a book for us about putting first things first. The keys, if you will, to experiencing victory as the people of God. That God has has certain priorities for us, his people. And this book teaches us that these must be matters of first importance for us if we are going to experience the victory of his kingdom. So to recap, Judah, that southern kingdom, that small part of Israel, has just returned from 70 years of captivity in a foreign land in Babylon. And they've returned home to their land to be able to reoccupy and to rebuild their home and to rebuild their temple and to reestablish worship of Yahweh in this place. In fact, it's the king of Babylon, the king of Persia, has authorized them and has enabled them to be able to do this. But really more importantly than that, they have the backing of the prophetic and authoritative word of God going before them. But when they get there, they begin to rebuild. When they get there and they begin to rebuild, there are some big challenges that await them. They find that not everybody is so interested in their rebuilding program, and there are adversaries who would love nothing more than for all of the work to just stop. And we talked about this last week, how one of the first things they did, seeing that enemies were surrounding them on every side, was not go out and try to fight them, but was to build an altar. They started by building an altar for sacrifice. Before they could do anything else, we said they knew that they needed to have their hearts right with God. And how this is one of the most basic needs that we all have, is to know that our hearts are right with God. Sacrificial atonement for the forgiveness of sins was the matter of first importance. Talked about how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with, With the scriptures. As a church, we must keep the atoning sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins as the matter of first importance. We said if we if we get distracted with lesser matters, we do so while others perish without receiving this news. And we, too, can easily fall into this trap of legalism and forget how to forgive. If we forget what Christ has done for us, we are going to forget how to love and how to forgive others and how to show them the love of Christ. All of us need to keep atonement first and foremost in our lives. Then the next matter of first importance that I talked about was the priority of gathered public worship. The priority of gathered public worship. After they built the altar, they began rebuilding the temple. They laid the temple foundation. Why? Because they needed to be reminded continually that God's presence was there with them and that they could turn to God in all times for strength, for provision, for forgiveness from sins. Acknowledging as a community that he was their God and they were his people. When gathered worship disappears from the community or when gathered worship disappears from the city, so goes our witness to the world of God's power. I heard a a presentation recently. Uh, Someone gave a presentation on the state of gospel preaching in churches in New England right now. They talked about how 400-year-old church buildings are going vacant all the time because congregations are dwindling down to nothing. And once these church buildings are vacant, many are being converted into luxury apartments or office space or something else. And it's not that that the the building itself is somehow the dwelling place of God, but it, it paints for us a picture of the really sad story of a city, Boston. Boston is a city that was founded in the hopes of being a city on a hill put there by God to be a witness to the nations and to send out missionaries to the nations, witness to his salvation and glory. Now it's virtually absent of the church. As the priority of gathered worship waned, so went the witness of a once spiritually vital city of hope. In fact, it's so absurd now that Harvard University, which was founded as an a evangelical Christian stronghold to train up pastors, I don't know if you saw this, but they just elected as their head of chaplains an atheist chaplain. It's really insane, but but it goes to show us that when there is no one gathering for public worship, there is no longer a witness to the world, and it only takes a couple generations before there are almost no Christians. And I praise God that he is replanting churches all the time now in New England for this purpose of restoring his glory in that place. But that brings us up to where we are now in those matters of first importance in the book of Ezra. And the next matter for us to consider is the priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. It was about 50 years, actually. This book spans quite a bit of time. You might not know it if you just read through it. But it was really about 50 years after the temple was rebuilt that this guy, Ezra, enters into the picture. In fact, I said, it's not even till chapter seven that we are introduced to this man. And we we really don't know a whole lot about why he was sent at this time. Like why after 50 years or or how he got before the king and got the king to let him go on this mission and even send him along with lots of goods for refurnishing the temple. But we do know this. We know that Ezra was a scribe and that he was in the line of the high priests. In Israel. In chapter 7, verse 10, here's what it says to us it tells us about Ezra. It says that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, not just to study it, but to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. To study the Word of God, to do the Word of God, and to teach. The word of God. It also says of Ezra three times in chapter 7 alone that the hand of the Lord was upon him. This new king of Persia had granted him everything he asked. Why? For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ezra's whole ministry If you read these last four chapters, and if you read about him later on in the book of Nehemiah, his whole ministry is really marked by this bold and steadfast confidence that God's word is sufficient. Confidence that God's word is wholly sufficient. And Ezra is is really, he's sort of a a prefiguring of Christ, in that he represents God's word. If you can picture this, God's word descending on Jerusalem to call people to repentance and faith. Think of Jesus, the word who became flesh and dwelt among his people, calling out, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. So Ezra sets out on this journey, which is a pretty long journey, maybe a thousand miles if you were to measure this out on the map. But this journey from Babylon, where he was once in captivity, back home to Jerusalem. And he sets out with several others and a whole lot of gold and silver. We're talking like millions of dollars in today's money that he was given by the king to help reestablish temple worship in Jerusalem. (coughs) But just a little way into the journey, they come to stop and camp out at this river for about three days. And once he gets there, I I don't know, I imagine like maybe he was just so excited that he had gotten everything he asked for for the king and that that God was really sending him to do this. And it it must have been so excited. But he gets there, and I guess he just stops to reflect for a little bit. And he realizes there's one major problem. In fact, there's a couple problems, but there's one major problem. You know how it is. You you, you head off on a road trip that you're really excited about, and you, you get in the car, and then about... Thirty minutes down Highway 75 on your way to Oklahoma, you forget your tooth. You realize you've forgotten your toothbrush, or you've forgotten maybe one of your kids. <laughs> you guys, we we got to fix something if we're going to be able to continue on this journey. Well, Ezra, who had been called by God to re-establish the centrality of temple worship in Jerusalem and the teaching of the teaching ministry to his people. Guess what? They forgot. They forgot some of the priests. He looked around and he realized there were no priests from the tribe of Levi that have joined him. And we don't really know why they hadn't joined him up to this point. But he thought, this probably needs to change if we're going to do this thing. So when he realizes this, he sends for these Levites to come with him on this long journey so that they can be a part of fulfilling their duties as priests to care for the temple of God and to lead their people in worship. Then once they arrive and they are reunited, some of them, with Ezra, at this river, still hundreds of miles from Jerusalem, he realizes something else. Something else that he might need. He had resources for the temple that the king had given him. He had some personnel who were now ready to run the temple worship system. But he was embarking on this massive journey with tons of highly valuable goods, yet without any military protection of any kind. If you can imagine, to travel in a caravan like this, completely defenseless... All right, you have millions of dollars worth of stuff, completely defenseless, while going through lands where there was no state-ordered security. No doubt, countless enemies who would probably want to plunder everything. This would have seemed probably to Ezra and others as both dangerous and foolish. So what would you do? What would you do if you found yourself in this situation? Now, this is this is not to say that it would be sinful for us to seek out some sort of physical security or military protection. But I think what happens next really highlights well for us Ezra's confidence in the Lord. If you look in chapter eight, verse 21, we see what he does. We see where he turns. It says in chapter eight, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast. There, So again, realizes he's completely defenseless, realize he has no protection for this journey. What does he do? I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since we had told the king the hand of our god is good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him so we fasted and implored our god for this and he listened to our entreaty it's kind of like funny to me to think about this but we already told the king that god was going to give us everything we need so that would be kind of be embarrassing to go back for him for help. Maybe we should just turn to the Lord and trust that he is going to do what he said he would. I don't really want to ask the king for military protection because, because we have God on our side, right? What kind of witness is that to him when I can show him the power of God by imploring God's help? So there's only one, le- thing, one thing left to do. Let's fast and let's pray. Let's fast so that we can be reminded where it is that our help truly comes from. And let's take some time to stop and seek his help to deliver us where he's already said he's going to deliver us. How about we call upon God for his help? I think this is such a a perfect example of what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. He had the option to seek first the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of Persian, and yet he said, no, what's more important is that we as a people seek first the kingdom of God. What did Jesus tell us? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then what? All these things will be added unto you. The great... Protestant reformer Martin Luther said this one time, given all the challenges that lie before him and what he was called to do, he said, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. I know none of us think like that, right? I have so much to do, I don't have time for prayer. But he says, I have so much to do, I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Another good example from church history is the ministry of George Mueller. I don't know if any of you have ever heard the stories of George Mueller, but he was the great prayer warrior in England who founded Orphanages for tens of thousands of children to be able to teach them the gospel. And 117 Christian schools without ever asking anyone but God for a single penny. And he says this. He says, the first and primary object of the work was and still is that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. So I wonder, would you say that prayer is a matter of first importance in your life like this? like it was for Ezra. Paul tells us in the famous armor of God passage in Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He says it may seem like your struggle is against flesh and blood. It may seem like your struggle is against physical things, but I'm here to tell you our struggle is against the powers of darkness. Our our, our Struggles are against the spiritual forces of evil and he says part of putting on this armor part of putting this armor on Is to pray at all times in the spirit? To pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and Supplication it's kind of like saying to pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and prayer So just keep praying in everything that you do Friends If you are troubled by something this morning, let prayer speak over that first inclination that you might have to worry. If you find yourself coveting something that you don't have this morning, let prayer speak louder than that inclination that you have to want. Let prayer precede that urge that you might have to fix that nagging problem through grit and pure self-will. And let your time in prayer exceed your time that you spend venting to friends about all of your trials. Let prayer drown out your words of frustration that you have with the workplace. Let prayer overcome your angst about tomorrow when it is still today. Let's commit today to making prayer a matter of first importance. And as we seek the Lord for help, let us also not forget how already he has provided for us richly everything that we need for life and godliness through his word. The next matter of first importance I want us to see through the story of Ezra is Obedience to God's word. So we have atoning sacrifice, gathered worship, prayer, obedience to God's word. Ezra, as I said, was sent to teach God's word in order to call God's people to obedience to God's word. He said he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel immediately. Upon arrival in Jerusalem, Ezra was going to encounter a very big dilemma. And if he hadn't already been steeped in God's word, if he didn't already have it flowing out of his heart, this would have become a much, much bigger problem. They had physically survived this long journey, but as soon as they arrived, he was hit hard with the reality of the spiritual climate of the land. Officials came to Ezra and they confessed to him. They said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Even the priests, the leaders, the teachers, the officials of the people of God had begun to mix in the gods of the nations, had begun to share their allegiances, divide their allegiances between the true God and the false gods. They had returned to doing the exact same thing that led them into captivity in Babylon in the first place. And so Ezra says this in chapter nine, verse three, it switches to the first person. He says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and my beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled Until the evening sacrifice. And again, you can read this lengthy prayer of confession as he goes before the Lord, as he fasts before the Lord, and as he cries out to God in prayer for mercy. When is the last time that you have trembled at the realization of sin in your life? Or the realization of sin in the lives of brothers and sisters around you. When is the last time that you wanted to pull your hair out and throw yourself on the ground and throw yourself before the mercy seat of God because you realized the sin that was keeping you from enjoying the presence of God? I think you will see here, this was not merely feeling bad. This was not merely some kind of virtue signaling. Ezra trembled at God's word over the sin that he found in the camp. And after a lengthy time in prayer, he, along with the officials, set out to change their course of action. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief, in other words, just feeling bad about something or letting people know you feel bad about something, worldly grief produces death. Brothers and sisters, how do you know if you are repentant? How do you know if you are walking in repentance? Jesus said, after all, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus himself said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. How do you know if you are repentant? Now, I could lay upon you this morning an emotional guilt trip that would carry, stay with you maybe the remainder of this morning, the remainder of this week. But if all it does is serve to make you feel bad and yet produces no change of course in your life, then I would say that it hasn't produced repentance. Repentance is when the conviction that God brings through His Word produces a change of course in your life. You think of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son finds himself eating in the mud with the pigs and he feels really bad about his situation, but he doesn't just feel bad. What does he do? He says, I need to go running back to the father. I need to go running back to the house of my father and fall at his feet and ask for forgiveness. The pastor was was writing very recently an article about this concept of godly grief. And he concluded an article by saying, I think that some of us would rather just feel bad. After all, it's a lot easier than being changed. I think it's true that a lot of us, we come to church because we want to feel conviction for our sin, but we know that when Monday comes, we're just going to go back to doing the same thing that we were doing all along, because it's so much easier than being changed. So what was the course change for the people of Israel? The leader said to Ezra in chapter 10, verse 2, they said, We have broken faith with our God. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the sons of Eliashib, where he spent the night. Again, the same pattern, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Again, trembling at the word of God, devastated by the sin that he saw before him. Now, just a a quick word here to understand this, what's going on in in the, the whole of Scripture here interracial marriage was not the problem okay do we do we understand that Uh, it wasn't about the fact that one race was simply marrying another race Uh, I do not believe that there's anything wrong with that today the problem was that by intermarrying what they were doing was they were welcoming the foreign gods of the nations into their home and dividing their allegiances They could no longer worship God solely because they were being asked by the families that they were bringing into their lives to worship their gods along with them. You see, the thing about our God is that he is worthy of all our worship. How much of our worship? He is worthy of all our worship of our worship. The Lord our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Center Baptist Church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. You shall have no other gods before me. Here they were, having welcomed other gods of the nations back into their homes and hearts. The very things that, that rent the temple worship apart and left him homeless and carried off into Babylon. And I think this highlights something really important for us. Genuine worship of God demands, demands that we put away all of those things which would compete with our worship of him. Let me say that again. Genuine worship of the one true God, genuine worship of Jesus Christ demands that we put away everything which might compete with our worship of him. So here's what repentance looked like for the leaders, for Ezra, for the people in his days. It looked like divorcing themselves from all ties to false gods. Divorcing themselves from every association they had with false gods. And as I said last week, whether this was the right way to go about it, or rather this is just a report of what they did, we can know this. We can be certain of this. The intent was to remove all hindrances from worship. The intent was to remove all barriers that kept them from worshiping the one true God. And we must have this same attitude today. Now, let me say, I am grateful. I am very grateful as a pastor, especially that we have a New Testament fulfillment that gives us a better solution to this problem. First of all, the New Testament is absolutely clear that we should not yoke ourselves into binding spiritual partnerships with unbelievers. We should not seek to be married to or to enter into a relationship where our allegiances are going to be divided between our worship of God and whoever it is they want us to worship. But also, we have the hope of redemption, right? For those who have, for those who may be married to unbelievers today, the answer is not divorce. Rest assured, the answer is not divorce. The answer instead is evangelism. The answer is to proclaim the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins as we live together in those partnerships. 1 Corinthians seven thirteen says, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. In other words, he is set apart for a specific message for God to communicate to him, to her, in the presence of their spouse. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? For Ezra and the people, the solution was simply to obey what they knew to be true. To obey what God's word said for them. The law said not to intermarry with foreigners. Therefore, they thought we must separate. But setting the particulars aside for just a moment, we are called to do the exact same thing today, right? We are called to take God at his word, to trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And so the question I have for us this morning, matter of first importance number four, is obedience to God's word a matter of first importance for you today? First of all, do you just leave the word unheard? Do you leave it unopened? Is it sitting on your shelf? But if you are reading it, are you reading it with the intent that I want to do everything that God says for me? G.K. Chesterton is a great writer. I can't commend everything he says, but, but he says in this book, which is titled, What's Wrong with the World?, In a chapter that is entitled, The Unfinished Temple, this is very appropriate for this Ezra sermon today, What's Wrong With This World? The Unfinished Temple has this great quote. He says, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's not that people have have tried to, to follow Christ and they find it to be wanting. It's that it has been found difficult and left untried. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. Some people say like, I don't know about this Christian thing because it just doesn't seem to be working out. Are you obeying? Are you seeking to obey everything that God says for you to do? I would say that if we look at this example of Ezra, to submit to prayer and fasting, to stop and to pray and to fast when money and power and security seem far more practical in the moment That's going to feel very costly, right? How many of us, when we have all these things before us, all these things we're overwhelmed by, start looking at all the practical ways that we can address the problems versus stopping to pray? If we stop to pray, we might feel like we're missing out on something. It feels costly. To submit to God's word, to submit to God's word when it feels largely out of step with the world is going to feel costly. How many of you, in obedience to God's word, feel like you are largely out of step with the ways of the world? Anyone? That's a good thing. That's a really good place to be, but it doesn't mean it won't feel painful and it won't feel costly and it won't feel extremely difficult and excruciating in the moment. But in making these matters of first importance, matters of first importance in our lives, We inherit the unshakable kingdom and the indestructible joy that can only come through faith in Christ. Think about this for a second. People can take money away, right? They can take our goods away. They can really take our our, our freedom away. But think of these matters of first importance. Can they take the atoning sacrifice of Christ for the forgiveness of sins away? Last time I checked, no. No. And we can say that they could take gathered public worship away, but we as the church know that we are are interconnected no matter how they want to disperse us, that we are the people of God in this world, worshiping him together. Can they take prayer away from us? Sure didn't seem to hinder Paul. Can they take our obedience, our worshipful obedience to God away from us? Last time I checked, the evil one has yet to come up with an answer for all of these things. These are the indestructible, unshakable matters of first importance that God has in his love and in his care for us, given us in order to enjoy him and experience him to the full. So I guess this would be my challenge for us this morning. If you find that these priorities of God are not your priorities today, if you find that your priorities are largely misaligned with what God's priorities are for you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, gathered public worship, prayer, obedience to God's word, if you find yourself out of step with these things, take note right now. Ask God to reveal to you what those areas of your life are. And then commit and tell them, Lord, help me to make these the matters of first importance in my own life.